Tonight, uh, I'd like to offer a little sneak preview on the the half-day retreat that we'll be doing on February 2nd. And I just remembered, as Andrea spoke, that the title would be The Healing Power of Mindfulness and Love. And I think I may have chosen that that title, The Healing Power, is because the because the uh, the Buddha has often been described as the as a great healer, the great physician, and the the medicine or the healing uh, tool that he offered was uh, um, was the Dharma, uh, the essentially the teachings and the practice, and the heart of the what we really mean by Dharma in terms of the teachings are the uh, four noble truths and the noble eightfold path. The four noble truths and the noble eightfold path. This is the medicine uh, of the of the Buddha, the pres- the prescription that he uh, offered uh, for dealing with only the the only issue that he was interested in, which was the fact that we suffer a lot and the possibility that. Our minds can become, uh, our hearts can become liberated, freed from suffering. He was not interested in, in metaphysics or figuring out why this and why that, but much more just through our direct knowledge, through our direct insight knowledge to, to see the fact that we, and acknowledge the fact that we are uh, often disturbed and uh, all the tools offered are to simply to alleviate uh, the um, the disturbance through one to realize what it is that's causing us to feel disturbed and then rooting out that cause of the disturbance. And so the four noble truths and the noble eightfold path. Now these two are very interwoven, and I don't want to give a whole discourse on this tonight, but the. They're so interwoven that the that the first of the the fourth of the four noble truths is the noble eightfold path, and the first some would say the first part of the the first uh, the first step on the noble eightfold path is realizing the four noble truths. Wise understanding. So these two are very much interwoven. And you could say that the, the methodology or the, the means of, of realizing the Four Noble Truths and the, and the means of practicing the Noble Eightfold Path uh, is the practice of mindfulness and love. And it's bringing, as the Noble Eightfold Path unfolds, as the different path steps are, are um, elucidated on, they include three basic parts sometimes called sila samadhi panya sila is the establishment of uh, foundation in our life and our practice of ethics and morality and uh, the uh, the uh, a way of helping us through the care that we take with our actions the um, the care that we take with our actions, letting those be the means of melting away the, the contractions that we often feel 
melting away the isolation and re- reinforced feeling of, um, of being uh, disturbed, alleviating those things that, are, that arise through our unwise speech, our unwise action, uh, and our unwise thoughts, body, speech, and mind. And by practicing great care and attention to the, the details of how we engage, how we treat ourselves, how we treat each other, how we use speech, how we use resources, how we uh, relate to other people, how we relate to other people's property, how we relate to intoxicants, by, by purifying, by refining the way that we live our lives, uh, we can slowly, slowly come out of the tangle, come out of the isolation that comes from causing ourselves and other people harm, and enter into a, a greater sense of, of joy, the joy of non-harming, sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness, the... Uh, the, um, just the, the peace that comes from not having to replay everything we say, everything we think, and everything we do. Just the less um, mind, we, you can, we call them less mind moments spent um, uh, either planning ways of causing harm or, or reverberating from the effect of maybe someone causing us harm. That we, we all move in tandem in a direction of, of love, of connection, because it is, it is fundamentally the sense of isolation, born of, a, of an illusory view of separateness, an illusory sense of self. It's through this illusory sense of self that we, we uh, feel more and more, as there's so many ways to talk about it, more and more cut off from life, more and more feel like, as the metaphor I often use from the Bhagavad Gita, I'm, more and more that feeling is that I'm, the, I'm a wave that's somehow gotten separated from the ocean. Falling into this illusion that a wave could ever be separated from the ocean. And then we spend so much time trying to get ourselves back home to the ocean, not realizing in the midst of it that we're, we're completely immersed in the very thing we're searching for. But this illusion of separateness gets reinforced through, the, through, the, um, through unwise speech and unwise action. And so uh, there's great care. And I don't want to, this could be a whole Dharma talk on, on that uh, ethic, ethics and morality. And then the, another uh, part of the Eightfold Path, and it's a hologram, each part affects the other. Uh, the other. The middle part of the Eightfold Path, some would say, is the the part where we train our minds to, to be steady, to put our minds in the same place as our body, as we did tonight, where we, we gather ourselves, we, we develop the conditions that lead to what's called wise concentration or right concentration, where our mind, is, our mind and body are so much in harmony. And of course, this is, depends to a great degree on, on how well we have established our sense of ethics and morality and our harmlessness because it, as one uh, phrase that's been used to try to, to, try to develop the, the unification of our heart and mind to develop the conditions that lead to concentration, 
without having that foundation of ethics and morality is like trying to row a boat without untying it from the dock. It's a, it just doesn't happen. We're just we're constantly being bombarded with the effects of our of our action. So the middle part of the Eightfold Path, practiced in tandem with non-harming, is has within it wise mindfulness, the medicine of mindfulness, the medicine of having of having awareness and clear comprehension of what it is that's happening in the present moment. And of course you know why this would be valuable. Why would this be valuable? Why would it be helpful to have, have uh, awareness or mindfulness and clear comprehension of what's happening? Somebody's got to tell me, why would we want to have be present? Please, Kevin. That's all there is. That's all there is. What else? Why would we also want to be present? So we can avoid getting attached to whatever's going on. Yeah, there's something about being present with something and, and attachment can't uh, so easily coexist. Please. It feels good. <laughs> no doubt about it. We feel so much better when, we are, when, our, when we're immersed in the, in the living reality as opposed to the the imagined reality, which is often fraught with a lot of fear. Fear is never about what's happening right now. It's always about some anticipated, imagined future. And what else? Why, why, why else would it be helpful to have mindfulness and clear comprehension? We respond, we respond more adequately. adequately to what's going on. It is that presence of mind, thank you, it's that presence of mind that allows us to, to meet our experience with a kind of intelligence that helps us, helps us be more, just, more adequate in our, in our responses, to, to more likely make wise decisions about what we say or whether we say it at all, what we eat or whether we eat it at all. What we don't eat, what we what we what we um, drink, what we smoke, what we buy, uh, presence of mind interrupts the the um, the addictive mind, and at least creates a space of creative choice, creates a, a place of of volition and. When mindfulness is mixed with volition, mindfulness is considered a purifying, what's called a purifying mental factor. When mindfulness is present with some kind of intention, some kind of intention to say something or to buy something, mindfulness takes out of whatever that decision, it takes out the greed, it takes out the aversion, and it takes out the delusion, the ignorance. It, it makes us, it creates the conditions for wiser choices. Adequate response. I like that very much. So there's so many reasons why it's useful to cultivate um, as our medicine, maybe our central medicine, mindfulness with clear comprehension. So it's not just this kind of bare attention just a bare presence. It's an intelligent awareness.
one that's very discerning about what's suitable, what's suitable to eat, drink, take, say, think, what's useful, what's true. We, are, we learn how to be, how to be discerning about uh, so many things. As I was thinking just now about, the, about wise speech, the, the recommendation for the training of the, that, uh, the morality of, of, of right speech is to say what's true, to say what's useful. And sometimes true isn't necessarily useful. To say what is of benefit to the person we're speaking to when there's often the impulse to say what's, what we're intending to uh, cause harm to that individual with our words. To say, to, to speak harmoniously. Because every seed that we plant with our words, with our thoughts and our actions, produce a result. We call that karma. It's a, everything produces a fruit. So it's really helpful if you have mindful attention with clear comprehension. And so you, it, it helps you make, live a little bit more wisely. I know that uh, you know, so many things an- anecdotally where people have interrupted their habits with, because they've been practicing mindfulness, they start interrupting some of those habitual, reactive, addictive patterns, and all of a sudden they, they start making different choices, and they start getting along a little better. But that's a, it's, a, it's a work, in, everyone's a work in progress in that way. So that's the, um, the middle part of the Eightfold Path is mindfulness, conditions that give rise to concentration. And then the, the second, I'm not going to get to wise understanding, that's the Four Noble Truths, that's, a, that's the, the ultimate medicine. But I want to highlight the, the third part of the, uh, the third aspect of the middle part of the Eightfold Path tonight, which is what's called wise effort or right effort. And right effort has to do with, um, with uh, arousing the, the conditions and making our mind and body strong and our developing mental strength uh, and developing strength of heart so that we can so that we can manage this world that's very intense. Our lives, our daily lives that are very intense, very full, very demanding. Uh, and to be able to, to live in this world with the greatness of heart, with, with, um, with a quality, with a boundless openness, with a quality of, of, um, of balance, uh, of a, this capacity to to absorb the enormity of suffering, to be able to respond with, a, with a, a, a quiver of our heart of compassion and be able to actually sit in the middle of it all and let our hearts break and not have to, to constantly hide away in fear and dullness. And to be able to accommodate, to have the strength of heart to accommodate the capacity that each of us really has, and we don't even know the extent of it, the capacity for joy the capacity to be plugged into an inexhaustible um, source called life and not have to shut down in order to, uh, to, to, to really feel, in order to be able to function. As many of us kind of have to, we, we often feel like we have to tone it down. Why do you think we drink? Why do you think we 
numb out in front of the TV? Why do you think we, um, we shop till we drop? It's to, it's to dampen the, the enormity of our lives. So wise effort has within it four different uh, aspects that, um, that we, that we want to use for our training in our life. And those four are called, uh, they're called uh, the four efforts. And the first one is to cultivate the wholesome. Now, everything I've talked about in terms of wise action, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, this is, this is the wholesome, no doubt. This is onward leading. This is, this is healing. It makes us feel better. It, it feels good to be present. It feels good to have our mind and body in the same location. It feels good to have that, the bliss and the joy of, of not having to think so much about uh, what I just said to that uh, policeman who pulled me over. The names I called him, and the, well, I've, I have. I've had, I have a history of calling policemen names. <laughs> Are there any policemen here tonight? I apologize. It's such a relief not to have to replay events, and of course, it's it's so wonderful not to have to replay events where we were uh, where we were harmed by someone else's unskillful actions. So mindfulness, it's so helpful in that regard. But we want to cultivate the wholesome, and this is what the Buddha said, cultivate the wholesome and maintain the wholesome. And then the second half of that is to abandon or relinquish the unwholesome, which means basically stop doing the things that aren't so helpful. And and the last part is to prevent the unarisen unwholesome from arising, which means make your, your heart and your mind so strong, the forces of purity so strong in your life, which is completely within our power. We are absolutely, 100%, everyone in this room, are, we are eminently trainable to be happy. There's not a person immune to that, no matter how much you may think you're unworthy, how much harm you've caused, how much harm you've caused yourself, how much harm you've caused. The effort to cultivate the wholesome, to maintain it, to abandon what's unwholesome, people have transformed their lives, not always through practicing Buddha Dharma, many different methods. It just shows that within every human being there is a capacity to purify the heart and the mind. And that process of purification isn't, uh, it's simply, it's simply, it's mostly being conscious. It's mostly staying where you are and then letting your, your intelligence guide you to, and your discernment guide you to cultivate the wholesome and maintain it and to, and to, uh, to, um, to restrain the impulse to do things that cause harm and then to prevent and to, get so much in the habit of living well that you don't even want to. You become constitutionally incapable of, of doing anything that causes harm. This is really possible. It just feels, uh, feels terrible to, to cause ourselves or anyone else harm. So the, central, the two central healing modalities are mindfulness 
which I talked about, clear comprehension. And the, the other aspect of mindfulness, and these two are an interdependent whole, the other aspect is uh, the quality of what the Buddha called metta, or loving-kindness, friendliness, uh, goodwill, the capacity of our heart to extend itself beyond just that sentimental kind of attached love, dependent love, to a, a wider, a wider circle of affection, to the extent that that circle of affection becomes so boundless and impartial that there's nobody left out of our heart, nobody left out of our compassion, nobody left out of our, our ability to join uh, with someone in their joy, and no one outside of the, um, and no one outside of our heart that um, that requires that we that we shut down, that we um, become cut off, indifferent. In other words, we develop. Through, the, through loving-kindness and through the expansion of loving-kindness and the qualities that flow from loving-kindness, we develop this greatness of heart, which is our natural state, really. It's our natural birthright. This greatness of heart that uh, becomes quite mountain-like, sky-like and impartial, boundless, responsive, loving, caring, joyous. And that is, everybody has that within them. And as medicine, the Buddha recommended that we specifically use our, use our uh, conceptual mind, our thoughts. Oh, I hope I can find this one passage. To use our conceptual minds, best use of our conceptual minds, and our good hearts, and mix our thoughts and our feelings in a very specific, intentional direction of generating loving-kindness, generating compassion. These, these are called the, the um, immeasurable qualities of the heart. This boundless love, compassion, where that love hits the pain of the world, it, ex it expresses itself as compassion called karuna, metta karuna. The third quality is what's called mudita, or altruistic or sympathetic joy, the capacity to have that same love meet someone, something that is joyful, and, or someone who's experiencing in their life great good fortune, and to be able to join with that person in their good fortune, uh, and have a, a have have a sympathetic response instead of what is commonly a very contracted, jealous, envious, comparing, judging response when people experience great joy and abundance. And then finally, to practice, that's what's called sympathetic joy or, or mudita. And then finally, the quality that I just spoke of, the greatness of heart, is the quality of equanimity, otherwise known as upekka. Equanimity is this um, 
unshakable balance of heart and mind, this greatness of heart that has the capacity to experience all the joys and all the sorrows and not lose one's sense of, of wholeness, not lose one's sense of ground, not fall into despair with the pain and not fall, fall into attachment with the, with the joys and to be able to sit in the middle of it all, to be the eye of the hurricane. And that this is all within our capacity. And this is a medicine that anybody can practice every day. The methodology for developing uh, loving kindness, as I said, it's the, it's, the, it's the connection that we can feel with our heart. And it's, of course, sometimes if we haven't been training in this and we've been in the habit of hiding away and being contracted, Often our heart, we can't feel much in our hearts. We feel a kind of deadness or a numbness. But we try, we just connect with whatever we feel there. And we start with directing thoughts and feelings of loving kindness toward ourselves. This is what the Buddha said, the thought manifests as the word. So we start thinking this. And then with words, with words, the word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and the habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its way with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. So we're, of course, in the habit of being um, preoccupied with our own internal drama, but not very loving to ourselves. We, We get absorbed in our own internal world, out of care for ourselves, out of trying to figure it all out, but end up sometimes causing ourselves harm, sometimes being critical, sometimes being judgmental, sometimes being um, just filling our minds with thoughts of unworthiness or thoughts of self-hatred. And another thing that the Buddha said about our thoughts and our words, that, that uh, hatred never ceases by hatred. So when we think of hating somebody or being angry at somebody, it never ceases by, it never ends by continuing it. It's only by love that our hatred melts. But the same is true for ourselves. Self-hatred never ended by self-hatred and judgment. Only by loving kindness alone toward ourselves does it begin to melt away. So we start with ourselves, and the Buddha suggested you could scan the world in all directions and not find anyone more deserving than you. And so we tend to leave ourselves out, especially here in the West, because we're so, so, um, on one hand, so self-absorbed, yet at the same time so worried about being selfish. It's, It's an odd mix. So we start with ourselves... But sometimes we can't feel it so easily toward ourselves. So it's sometimes helpful if you're going to do this practice, you want to, to think of, if you can think of anyone who you know loves you, cares about you, anybody who has been good to you, any, some kind of benefactor or some kind of beloved friend or mentor, someone like that, and imagine those people who, even if you can't feel it for yourself, Imagine them directing kindness. 
Yeah, I've often, there have been times when I had to, I had to, I could not feel any loving kindness. I used to be incredibly self-critical when I was younger. And, but I would, I would use other, other people. And I knew that they loved me and I'd say, okay, if they love me, there must be something there. So what do we do with, when we have that person do that? What do we do toward ourselves? We say, may I be happy. We use, in our, you, we try to actualize with those words. The, we try to connect with the feeling that, that is our deepest intention. Every single person wants to be happy. Every single person wants to be peaceful. Last week I talked about the importance of loving peace more than, more than whatever you want. Because peace is the, is the hidden aim in almost everything we want. That feeling of, yes, done is what needed to be done. Home, peace, peace. So we all want to be happy. We all want to be peaceful. We want, all want to feel safe. We all want to feel protected. We want to be protected from ourselves. Some We're scared of ourselves in many cases. We all want to be protected from others, from this crazy world. And so we wish that for ourselves. And... Not that your words will act, will automatically give you that, but each time you direct those thoughts of loving kindness toward yourself or, or toward anyone, you're actually expressing goodwill. You're expressing a wholesome intention. You're cultivating the wholesome. You're inclining toward love, toward care. And sometimes it, it takes a long time for the heart to crack, the heart to break. But it's, it's a sure thing. It's a sure thing if you just keep whittling away at the calcification caused by our self-hatred and self-judgment. But sometimes we can't do it at all for ourselves. Can't even think of somebody else doing it for us. So we find someone in this, someone in this world that's alive that may have been of some benefit to us, and we start directing it toward them. A benefactor. Traditionally, you go through a benefactor, you go through a a beloved friend, then you move on to uh, uh, just other near and dear ones. Then you move on to someone who you you. It's called the um, called the neutral person, somebody you might not even notice most of the time. So you can hear from this: you're slowly expanding your circle of affection beyond just your nearest and dearest to include people who are often invisible to you. And then finally. Not finally, but next we move on to the difficult people in our life. And otherwise known as, you start with one person, the difficult person. You don't bring a whole entourage of difficult people in your mind. That's too much. But a difficult person. And you slowly, slowly direct the same thoughts of loving kindness to them. And then finally you move on to uh, spreading that loving kindness to all beings everywhere. But start with yourself. And then if you're developing the next quality, compassion, karuna, you first and and you start first not with yourself. You start with you may be you start with what we call a, a person who's suffering, a suffering person. Somebody you know who's really in trouble, who's having a hard time, who's for whatever, in whatever, some conditions of their life are really unstable or the illness or 
they've lost the, whatever it is. You think of a, a, diffi- a, a person who's suffering, and you begin to hold them in your heart, hold them in your mind's eye, and you begin to direct feelings, most importantly, feelings of goodwill toward that person, feelings of well-wishing. And very specifically, the traditional phrase that's often used is, uh, is um, may you be free of suffering, because that's what you want for that person. That's what your heart of hearts wants. And if you're the suffering person and you direct thoughts to yourself, may I be free of suffering. Or a a more modern phrase, very simply, I don't want to get into all the different phrases tonight, but the more modern phrase is when you think of a suffering person is, I care about your suffering. I care about your suffering. Everybody with me so far? We've got... Some loving kindness, may you be happy, may be peaceful, may you feel safe and protected from inner and outer harm, may you be healthy and strong. That's another thing that all of us want. We want to be healthy, strong, strong mind, strong body. Yet, of course, we always have to consider when, we, when we're wishing ourselves and others health and safety, uh, that, or health and strength, that uh, we also have to be gracious about our limitations since our human bodies are fragile and vulnerable. How are we doing here? Okay, next, next we, um, we move on to mudita. So we've got loving kindness, we've got compassion, and then we have sympathetic joy. We think of somebody who's happy. Happiest person in our life or the person who's experiencing good fortune. And we join with them in their good fortune. We essentially say to them, May, uh, may your happiness and good fortune continue. May it increase and may it never wane. How many of you can think of a person who's in a state having good fortune right now? Okay. If you have somebody who comes to mind, do this. It's amazing. It's incredible. Just to warn you that this particular quality, mudita, this, this aspect of the awakened heart, the boundless heart, this immeasurable quality of all the, of what are called the four Brahma Viharas, these immeasurable qualities, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, this altruistic or sympathetic joy is the most difficult to actualize, to cultivate, because of our tendency uh, our tendency toward comparing and self-judgment and uh, envy, jealousy. Uh, so be very, very merciful and gentle with yourself as you uh, as you see all of the um, all of the unwholesome qualities of envy and jealousy rise to the surface. This is actually good news. It's good news in that these practices function as a purification of our heart. They highlight to us the limitations of our love. They show us where our love is selective, where it's conditional, where it's dependent, and where it is that we we shut down. And as we develop equanimity, we we see the limits of our of how much we can we see who can we who do we open to with equanimity? Do, do we have the same openness to, to, uh, 
to females or males or noble beings and not so nobles. We have uh, beings in uh, in all the different circumstances. Where who is it that we shut down around, and who is it that we are we're more easily open to? And we find that out, and hopefully we don't add any judgment to that. We just see it as a as the 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 more contracted we notice our heart, the the more we know that that practice is is bringing is is bringing our um, our shadow to the surface, bringing that which binds us into the light. And it is that it's the light that that um, that that dissipates the the fog and the, and the. Um, and the mist and the storms of, of our consciousness. So it's, it's good news. But don't, uh, don't be surprised, especially with mudita, that you're, that you're not so, it's not so easy. But boy, once you experience the feeling of mudita, there is nothing sweeter. And there, it is so wonderful. It is such a gift to be able to, uh, for someone to receive your altruistic joy. It enhances their joy, and it enhances your joy. It's joy to the giver and the joy to the receiver, just like generosity. It's a hugely generous thing to develop this heart of of mudita, or sympathetic joy. Finally, so the words are, may may your happiness um, continue, may it increase, may it never wane. And you just hold that person in your heart, that happy person. Finally, the quality of equanimity. Quality of equanimity or upeka is um, it has many different aspects to it. It, um, like I said, it's that capacity to sit in the middle of the joys and the sorrows, and to be and to be less reactive to things, to be able to see the lawful nature of how life is unfolding. That that under that sense that things are as they are. Because conditions are as they are. The world is the way it is because people are the way they are, is one example. And to have an understanding that, uh, that, that everything arises dependent on conditions. And it's not, things are not happening by accident, but they're happening in a lawful nature. So this, this understanding, this wider view of the causes and conditions and the dependent, how everything arises dependent on conditions, this this understanding, this wisdom gives rise to this quality of equanimity. But this quality of equanimity also is born of, of there are many ways that it's developed. It's developed by understanding in a deep way the, the quality of, or the, the reality of impermanence. When we see that everything arises and passes away, our, that which makes us so reactive and grasping and condemning and and taking everything so personally, it starts to relax. And quite naturally, we start to be easier, less reactive to the joys and the sorrows as they come and they go. We know that things are changing all the time. But when it comes to our relationships with people, especially because our our tendency to uh, associate love with attached love, with sentimental love, uh, and be... uh, and have love actually disguise itself, or have attachment disguise itself as love. What we think is love is actually a kind of detachment and dependency. And that kind of love says, I need you to, uh, 
uh, I need you to be happy to be happy. I need you to do this. It's, uh, our normal sentimental love is very demanding. It says you have, to, you have to be better, otherwise I can't be. And so it, it makes us very unbalanced and makes us just be blown by the winds of conditions that we have no control over. And that is especially true, with, and it's especially um, um, vulnerable with the people we are most dependent on, which is the, our nearest and dearest. And so often with, with people in our lives, we get so thrown by their unhappiness that we're not able to even meet it with compassion. And we're not able to meet it with, uh, we're not able to maintain our balance. So the phrasing for the development of equanimity, which, which is, um, which equanimity depends on those first three qualities, that, that quality of goodwill, that quality of being able to join with somebody and really connect and feel that whatever that person I'm loving is not apart from me. But what prevents our love from falling into, uh, into attachment, into misery, into, into despair, into, into fear, into, um, into grasping, is this understanding that all beings, this person who I care about so much, all beings are the inheritors of their karma, their, their actions. And their happiness or their unhappiness depends on their actions and not on my wish for them. Not on my will or my wish. Another way of saying it is, I care about you, which is that same thing as compassion and love. I care about you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. And so this sounds like you're distancing a little bit. You're not. Your heart is still wide open, but you're carrying within it the, great, the strength of mind and the wisdom to know that I will love you up, but whether you stop suffering is beyond my will or wish. I don't, I'm, it's not within my control. And so this is, this is a very essential quality. It's the culmination of the, of the Brahma-viharas, of these immeasurable qualities, this quality of equanimity, this greatness of heart that has the same love that's filled with all the love of the previous three, but it's, but it's, it's tempered with the balance uh, that keeps us from falling into excessive sentimentality. So this is uh, cultivating the wholesome, one aspect of cultivating wholesome, mindfulness and loving kindness. So I, I want to invite everyone for the, this year, this is a great thing to do since it's still January. New Year's resolutions are still ap- applicable. It's, what day is it? The 20th? Yeah, 21st of January. This is the beginning of, the, of a year. It could be a beginning of a year of daily metta, hourly metta, minute-by-minute metta. I've, ta- I've talked many times on Tuesday night about my own practice of what I call stealth metta, which is a practice where under my breath, I'm often, I used to do it a lot more, but I often, under my breath when I'm driving, I still do it driving, but I used to do it a lot just walking down the street because I felt a little disconnected from when I moved to the city. Under my breath, I'm saying, may you be happy, may you be happy, I love you, I love you, may you be free of suffering, may you 
May you be, may your joy continue. May it just some phrasing that, that reminds you that you don't exist alone apart from everybody else that here, that you're not just in this little vortex of me, that you can in so many ways you have the power to come out of the tangle of, of me thinking and, and flow down into wider, as Rumi puts it, to flow down into wider rings of being, to widen your circle of affection. And that's what brings happiness. That's what melts away that self-illusion, that illusion of separateness. And it's totally within your power. So stop, start right now. Whoever in the room you feel like juicing with a little stealth net to do it. And while we're at it, I'll, I'll just um, say a few things. I know I kept you a little longer tonight. I, I appreciate everybody staying with it. But I want to, I want to do, read two things. And this applies to all the Brahma Viharas, and you may want to practice all of them at different times, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. But this is the benefits of practicing these Brahma Viharas. People who practice the Brahma Viharas sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire don't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, uh, this is, I'm not going to even say this. It's all about rebirth, and that's just hocus pocus. The Buddha didn't say this, this part. Anyway, it's good. And last but not least, to, to give the full force of the of the Buddha's admonishment or his recommendation to practice metta, the famous metta sutra, he said, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness. Did I read this last week? I did. I'll do it again. Maybe every week. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, 
being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So may this practice and all of our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be free. May all beings be touched by loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.